Welcome to the Hidden White Podcast, episode 1055. This is my interview with Massimo Piglucci, and we're discussing his newest book, The Quest for Character. Enjoy. Hello, Massimo. Welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. Great to have you back. Great to be back. Thank you. This is not our first uh, interaction. We've um, discussed previously your last book. The name slips my mind, right? The second? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what was, what yeah, was that well, book called? The book was um, a, a, a field guide to a happy life. That's right. Which yes. is, uh, is a book about stoicism and in particular about the stoicism of Epictetus, who was an early second century slave turned teacher and, and one of the most interesting philosophers, I think, of the entire Western tradition. Yeah, right. And this new book, Quest, The Quest for Character, you're focusing on Socrates, yeah, talk about interesting philosophers, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I mean, a couple of the the, the more well-known Stoics um, that I guess people might be familiar with. Um, but it's still, I mean, Stoicism, you know, whilst I talk about it enough, uh, and you obviously talk about it a lot, um, it's probably still <laughs> yes. fairly uh, unknown in the in the, the Western world. Yeah, we're, we're working on it. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. We're working on it. <laughs> what What keeps you fascinated by Stoicism? Well, it is a very practical philosophy, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And uh, if you, you know, if you're looking for a framework in in life, a way to uh, make decisions about what to do, what not to do, um, a way of uh, ranking and and deciding your values and and uh, your priorities, well, that stoicism is a very good bet. There, are, there are others, and you know, one one could uh, get into Buddhism, for instance, outside of the Western traditions. Um, but I think Stoicism is a really good one. It just works. It has a, a pretty good uh, proven track record. Yeah, yeah. And I'd, I'd compare Buddhism to that as well, the feel that I get anyway. You know, it's it, it's sort of logical, makes sense, um, and and some good guides as to how to live a, a better life, I suppose. Um, you, this, this second book, it's probably not your second book, but this book that you've just written, The Quest for Character, why did you decide to focus on this? Well, the quest for character comes out originally on my fascination with the figure of Alcibiades, uh, actually more, more even so than Socrates. So Alcibiades was a student of Socrates, right. not a philosopher. Uh, he, was a, he became a statesman and politician and a general in Athens during the Peloponnesian War. And his life was so interesting that I don't know why nobody has made a movie out of it yet. Right. Uh, I, I hope somebody will. I mean, th this guy was incredible. He, he was impossibly handsome, super rich, uh, you know, brave and and you know dashing in in all ways like the, the guy was just had everything except unfortunately for wisdom <laughs> and that is what makes his life so interesting because he went from one catastrophe to uh to a to a success to another catastrophe to another success in in you know in a short relatively short life he died when he was in his 40s but when he was young, he right at the time that he decided to get into politics and in, into you know try to to lead Athens, as I said mm. during the war, 
he went to Socrates, who was his friend and his mentor, and and said, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to lead the Athenians. What do you think? <laughs> and and Socrates sits sits down, and this is uh, in the second chapter of, of my book. Mm. Uh, sits down with with Alcibiades, and they have a chat. And basically, it's a job interview, right? So Socrates starts asking Alcibiades. So if you were, you know, the leader of Athens, what what would you do? What kind of principles would you? You know, enact what what will be your priorities, that sort of stuff, and little by little, it becomes clear that Alcibiades is just not good material for statesmanship because right. he's a narcissist. He's he's too much into himself. He wants to do things because of glory and fame, and not not because it's the right thing to do. Right. And so, you know, Socrates at one point actually says to Alcibiades. Well, then I'll ask my friend what a condition you suffer from. I hesitate to name it, but since we two are alone, it must be said. You are wedded to stupidity, best of men, of the most extreme sort, as the argument accuses you and you accuse yourself. So this is why you're leaping into the affairs of the city before you're being educated. So it's like, wow, hold on a second. So he's accusing, uh, Socrates is accusing Alcibiades of being stupid, but in fact, it's not normal stupidity. The word in Greek is um, amatia, which amatia. means really unwisdom. Yeah, it means unwisdom. So I lack of wisdom. See. So that's the problem that Alcibiades has, that he just does not have the wisdom that it takes to be a statesman. And so right. Socrates actually advises him, advises him just don't do it don't go there do something else with your life don't go there of course Alcibiades ignores Socrates uh, suggestion you know advice and the result is catastrophic both for Alcibiades personally and for the city of Athens one can make an argument actually that you know about half of the reason why uh, Athens lost the Peloponnesian War is because of Alcibiades doings so that story was kind of the beginning of the quest for character that what, what gave me the impetus because I was so interested, of course, in practical philosophy and obviously in Socrates. Uh, Stoicism uh, is a Socratic philosophy, so you cannot, you can't be a Stoic and, and uh, not be interested in Socrates. But at the same time, I was also fascinated by Alcibiades and why he failed so spectacularly in what he, he wanted to do. So I had the idea then of, of exploring some other instances in Greco-Roman history mm. of either philosophers trying to advise politicians and statesmen or politicians and statesmen themselves practicing philosophy. Yeah. And, and I, you know, the question was, so what, what, what happened and, and what should be the relationship between ethics and politics? So that's the basic idea of the book. Yes, um, Socrates, did he have a couple of um, people in those high sort of power positions which he was a mentor to that um, definitely did not uh, follow the Stoic principles or failed miserably in their in their quest? Well, so the interesting thing is that Socrates, although he never himself went into politics, hmm. he actually advised a number of people either to yeah. go into politics or not to go into politics. So at some point, in fact, uh, as a sophist named Antiphon criticizes Socrates for not getting into politics himself. And Socrates says, well, how now, Antiphon, should I play a more important part in politics by engaging in them alone or by taking pains to turn out as many competent politicians as possible? So Socrates mm. very consciously saw himself essentially as an advisor 
as a as a uh, somebody who would have the ability to discern the character of individuals and say, yeah, you probably should do it or not, should not do it. So I'm yeah. going to give you a couple of examples. So we've already talked about uh, Alcibiades. Now, at some yeah. point, Glaucon, who was Plato's brother, also uh, thinks of, you know, considers getting into politics. And again, there is a conversation with um, Socrates, which is recounted in uh, Xenophon's Memorabilia, which is a book about about the life of Socrates. And uh, yeah. there too, with Glaucon, Socrates basically pretty clearly shows Glaucon that he just doesn't, he literally doesn't know what he's talking about. He, uh, actually, Socrates starts asking very specific questions like, you know, so what do you think of the the strength of our military? What do you think of our tax base? What do you think of this and that and the other? And Glaucon clearly has not thought about it at all. And, and he says, well, I don't know. I, I'm just, just, I thought I was just, I'm going to, I'm going to learn as I, as I go. And Socrates says, just don't do it. Don't, don't even think about it. And interestingly, Glaucon actually follows Socrates' advice. He, he gives up uh, politics and actually becomes a good musician of all, of all things. So that's mm -hmm. one case, I guess, in which you could counter uh, success. Advice, because, advice went in the Uber, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Now, it turns out that a few years later, Carmides, who was Glaucon's son, also is, you know, has him, is having a conversation with Socrates. And Glaucon, uh, sorry, Carmides has the opposite problem. He apparently, according to Socrates, he's actually, he would be a good politician. So he would make a good politician uh, and, and statesman. But Carmides has no intention. He's, he's kind of shy. He doesn't want to, he, he doesn't like to talk in public in front, front of the assembly, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Socrates, on the other hand, engages him and convinces him to, you know, change his mind and actually go into politics. And the thing works okay, meaning that uh, Carmides does go into politics and, and he does a good job at a, you know, in his in his own uh, in terms of his own attempts and his own uh, decisions. Unfortunately, he has the misfortune of serving under a government known as the 30 tyrants after the the demise of the democracy in Athens. And so things don't go particularly well because the 30 tyrants uh, was was a period, was a bad period for, for Athens. So, mm. but that's not, you know, that's not Carmides' fault. Carmides just tried his best and, and he happened to find himself in a situation that was definitely not conducive. So, mm. you know, the... The record, the track record is is um, somewhat mixed, I, I would say, but it seems clear that Socrates saw right. He did advise people who were going to be good at it to go into politics, and he did try to steer away uh, people who he didn't think were were very good. Sometimes, of course, you know, you can only give advice, and then whether people follow the advice or not, it's not up to you. So Socrates himself, he came into was was he a, a slave originally? Come from poverty? No, he was a no, he was a, a free man, but he was a stonemason. Um, so he's, uh -huh. that was his job. Um, and as we know, he spent most of his days, however, apparently not working really, <laughs> and, right. and just hanging around at the, at the gymnasium and talking to people about philosophy. Yeah. And what gets one into philosophy back in the day? Was it just fascination by? The, uh, the the uh, what do you call it evolution of life or improvement of life how to live a happy well, life yeah that's a good question so philosopher a philosopher at the time just as today I think uh, meant two different things so on the one hand you could be a philosopher in the sense of let's say 
Plato or Aristotle. So somebody who create who establishes his own school, teaches other people, uh, and spends time writing or or uh, or discoursing about all sorts of topics ranging from metaphysics mm. to ethics, etc. That's pretty much what I do as a professional philosopher, right? I uh, I teach at City College. Uh, and I talk to my students and write about all sorts of, of more or less technical issues. But mm-hmm. the second the second meaning of the word philosopher is somebody who practices the art of living, who, who actually uses philosophy as a way of life. Right. And in that sense, anybody can be a philosopher. Mm. And uh, Socrates was definitely a philosopher in that sense, mm. uh, far more so than, let's say, Plato or Aristotle. Many of the Stoics, especially the Roman Stoics, like Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius were philosophers in that sense. Seneca never taught anybody. He did write books, but he didn't didn't really uh, get into teaching. Epictetus was a teacher, but he didn't write books. Marcus Aurelius was neither. He never he didn't write books for the public. The Meditations uh, that we, we the book that we know today as the Meditations was um, his personal diary. It was not meant for publication, and mm. he never actually. Thought. So, so you could be a philosopher either in the more academic sense, so in in, in a no. sense, so uh, right, and uh, which is still true today, or in the sense of somebody trying to live a philosophic life, meaning mm. a life informed by the use of reason to navigate problems and circumstances. Hmm. So when we talk reason, I mean it's a really I don't know. For me, it always is hard to understand what what is reason. I mean, is that using logic, science, and nature to understand how things are? Well, to some extent, yes. Uh, so, reason. In fact, the Stoics, in particular, were very adamant about this. Uh, about this, they thought that in order to uh, have a good ethics, that is, to live a good life, you should study two other things: logic so that you learn how to reason correctly and what we would today call science uh, so that you understand how the world works. Because if you don't reason correctly and, or if you don't know how the world works, then you're going to have trouble in life, right? So mm, makes sense. Uh, that is still, yeah, exactly. makes perfect sense. It's still true today, right? So we are still in the middle of a, of a pandemic, regardless of what President Biden just said recently. And uh, if you don't know, if you don't know a minimum of science, that is, you don't, if you don't understand what a virus is and what pandemics are and stuff like that, you're likely to make mistakes. In fact, potentially fatal mistakes. Uh, also, if you know, however, about you know what viruses are, what a pandemic is, but you don't reason correctly about it, that is, you you, you make up your own stories and you know don't listen to. Uh, experts and stuff like that, then also you're likely to make mistakes that could be costly. So mm. the Stoics insisted that a good life is the result of good thinking and and good understanding of the world. So reason in that sense is what we might refer to as practical reason. That is yeah. reason as the way to, to navigate, a way to navigate the world based on evidence and on, on thinking about how things actually work. Yeah. Which makes, you know, a lot of sense, practical sense, really, to a logical mind, to a a, a mind that isn't that logical, um, spiritual <laughs> perhaps, or emotional. How does that enter Stoicism? Well, that's an interesting question. So, first of all, let's talk about the emotions uh, first, because too many people still today seem to think that emotions are somehow separate from 
thinking, from, from reasoning. And despite the fact that modern science tells us that, in fact, our emotional responses are deeply interconnected with our ability to reason, uh, you know, anatomically speaking, <clears throat> I guess there are two different kind areas of the brain. You know, our most of our thinking and executive decision making happens yeah. in the frontoparietal lobes of the brain, while our emotional reactions begin in the amygdala, which is the base of the brain. But if you look at, at it from a neuroanatomical perspective, you will see that the, those two areas are deeply interconnected with each other. They are, you know, they're, they're connected by literally billions of neuronal neuronal nets. So yeah. uh, there is no such a thing as a separation of reason and emotion. In fact, even today, people use sort of use this misconception as an excuse. You know, I've, I've heard people telling me, oh, well, you know, I just feel that way. I can't help it. And my response is, yes, you, yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you can help it. Uh, maybe not immediately. It's not like you can snap out of, of a particular feeling or a particular emotion immediately, but you can train yourself to, yeah. uh, you know, reason basically with your emotions, which is exactly what the Stoics tried to do. The most obvious case was um, Seneca's book on anger, mm. where he tells you that you cannot, you know, you can't shut down anger. It's not like, like by sheer will, willpower, you can you can somehow suppress anger. That just doesn't work that way. But what you can do is you can learn to recognize the onset of anger. You can act in certain ways that diffuses your anger, and then you can once that the anger is subsided, you can think about you know why was I so angry? What what the hell was the, the the problem? And how can I approach it the next time around without letting my anger get in the best of myself? So, so in terms of emotions, they uh, I don't think there is. It's all, a it's all part of the one. Mm. Yeah, it's all it's all one. I mean, which, the, the which stories... makes a, yeah it makes a lot of sense about stoicism and why that's important mm -hmm. because we are often if you're not capable we're often driven by emotion um you know yeah. whether it's anger and anger or jealousy or, or whatever it might be um but with with the right reasoning and, and tools in your in your belt then you can use that reasoning to help better manage your emotions so that they don't take you off in tangents correct. uncontrollably correct from a from a stoic perspective and also from the point of view of, of modern cognitive behavioral therapy a disruptive emotion, a unhealthy emotion, is simply a result of bad reasoning. For instance, if you all of a sudden right. start saying things like, you know, Massimo, you're an idiot, et cetera, et cetera, and I feel insulted, then it is, and I get angry as a result of being insulted. That's bad reasoning on my part because the underlying reasoning uh, that generates the emotion is, oh, it's bad to be insulted. But it's yeah. not bad to be insulted. Being an insult is just somebody opening their mouth and, and putting out, you know, moving air. It doesn't do anything to me. You can say whatever the hell you want about me. I don't care. So if I reason that way, then I don't get angry. And so mm. there is a connection there, a deep connection. Yeah, between absolutely. Now, you mentioned spirituality. That's, a, that's an interesting one because, of course, Nowadays, a lot of people seem to think of spirituality as completely separate from, uh, let's say, science and, and reason and stuff like that. But again, there, I think the, the Stoics were way ahead of their, of their time. Yeah. They thought of the soul. They, they did recognize something like the soul, something like the, you know, the center of human uh, emotion and, and reasoning. 
But they thought that the, the soul, just like everything else, is made of matter. It's, it's made of stuff. And, and therefore, when we die, it's going to decay just like everything else. Just like the body decays, then the soul, whatever mm. it is, mm. however, however it works. And therefore, again, there was no major difference there between spirit and, and matter. There was no, no, no distinction between the soul and, and the mind or anything like that. It's all one thing. Mm. Right. And so from a modern perspective, that amounts to say that the Stoics were materialists. They thought that everything was made of stuff and everything, therefore, changes or decays as stuff does. And yeah. there is no distinction between spirit, emotion and reason. It's all one bundle. It's all one mm. thing. It's all, it all happens inside your brain. Mm. Okay. This takes us off on a tangent from your book, of course, but um, it's quite interesting to, to see the soul as matter. How did the Stoics feel about um, death and maybe life after death? If the soul is decaying when you die, then I would assume that there is no, no such thing. Right. That's that's right. The Stoics did not believe in life after death, and they, they were also of the opinion that we just shouldn't be worried about death because death is um, a lack of sensation of any sort. So mm. it, and the reason for that is, of course, because we are not actually there. When when you yeah. say that somebody is dead, that's kind of a funny way to put it, because if he's dead, he's not that somebody anymore. <laughs> There's no, <laughs> right? So when I say, for instance, oh, my father died uh, a few years ago, well, that is true. But to say now that my father is dead is to make a, a category mistake, is to to impute a, a condition being dead to somebody my father who cannot actually experience that condition because my father doesn't exist anymore is you know his his elements have been recycled in oh, the cosmic uh, in the cosmic general so right so there is no so there is no since since we are not going to be there and this is by the way in this one interesting case in which the stoics completely agree with the epicureans the epicureans made the same exact argument mm. that there is no point in being afraid of death precisely because we're not going to be there to to experience it there's nothing to be afraid of now you might be afraid of the process of dying that's a different issue right because that could be painful i mean depending on the circumstances but even there marcus Aurelius says that um yeah sure you know, there, there might be pain, but the thing about pain is either it, it is endurable or it will pass in the sense that you're going to die. Yeah. And so, you know, either way, it's not going to last forever. It's it's going to be a, a short period in your life where you're going to be in pain or in discomfort and then uh, it will be over. So, you know, mm. I worry. Yeah, yeah. I like that way of thinking. On the other hand, I also think of death as, and then, and I guess religions or, um, or people that believe in life after death is that maybe it gives them some sort of hope that, hey, you know what? Um, it takes away the fear of death or of perhaps dying even. Um, how would you argue towards that coming from a stoic sort of point of view? Well, you mean about the fear of death itself? Well, more, more so about having a belief in, in something existing after this life to yeah. help give you that hope in life, you know? Um, sure. And, and I think this sort of comes to you when you are dealing with death. I lost my father um, earlier this year, and certainly it was one thing that I've never really thought about is, is life after death. But then I started thinking about because he passed and was like, okay, maybe there is something there and perhaps that will give us a chance to reunite at some stage, you know? Right. 
Right. I mean, so, so the the rational approach to that, I, I would I would say the stoic approach to that is uh, to realize that what you're doing there is indulging in wishful thinking. Right. You, mm-hmm. you miss your father, and uh, of course you would like to be, see him again. Um, that's a normal human emotion. Mm-hmm. But the moment in which you start saying, "Oh, maybe there is something out there. Maybe I will be, you know, reunited," etc. Now, now you're yeah. indulging in fantasies. Now you're basically. Yeah. making up stories that just just so that you feel better and yeah. um that that of course violates one of the fundamental precepts of stoicism which is that we should be always looking for the truth not for something that makes us feel better right that's good good answer <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it it's like it's a great answer isn't it really when you think about it like why why make things up to try and make yourself happy um Instead right. of tackling things front on, and that's where Stoicism really comes into it. Like, let's let's be open and honest, and have the facts around everything, and and then you know we can make better decisions from there. Yeah, it's a it's the old uh, blue pill or red pill question from the Matrix, the movie The Matrix, right? So, would yeah. you would you rather face reality as it actually is, or live in a fantasy uh, that it's going to be more pleasant, but it's also going to be a fantasy? And, yeah, you know, most people actually do pick reality they, they would they do pick the, the red pill um, and mm. uh, because we have a because we value reality like you know people have done experiments actually uh, you know in social psychology there are experiments where people are asked you know so if you had the chance of uh, stepping into a machine that uh, would make any kind of fantasies you have come true so you want to be a you know football star or a, a you know great actor or whatever it is it's fine it's going to happen but the 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 trade-off is you can never come back to reality you can never you know actually live a, a, a real a real life mm. and most people say that no they wouldn't do it and uh, when asked why uh, the answer is well because i know that i wouldn't it wouldn't be real it wouldn't be you know i wouldn't be making a difference in the world i wouldn't be helping my family i wouldn't be helping my friends it would just be an entire it's like being spending your life in a video game yeah and yeah as fun as it is for a few minutes or a few hours you, you presumably if you're a normal person you don't want to do that for the rest of your life mm. a lot of people are these days aren't they we're living in this in this online world Right. Yes, exactly. Uh, so beware of, of you know, the, the, these promises by social media companies about uh, living a virtual life and stuff like that. It's like, why would you want to do that? It's, uh, it's it seems like, yeah, I know, but do you think it's going to go that way more and more as people just try to escape the, you know, I feel like we're being protected and babied and, and wrapped up in cotton wool in this life. Um, rather than actually just dealing with the harsh realities of this is life, and this is what we've got to deal with. And if you look at stoicism in that point, that's that's what they say is, you know, face up to what is real. But what we're doing right. instead is is retreating uh, into whatever it might be, these fake realities of, you know, false yeah. friends online and, and false realities online and game worlds and all that sort of stuff, yeah. um, rather than dealing with what it actually is. Yeah, and that's a good question. I mean, that's an empirical question. Uh, you know, is is a majority of people in the near future going to go for you know the meta universe or whatever they, they call it, or or is it going to stick with reality? I certainly hope the latter, yeah. but I wouldn't bet my life on it. Right, no, it's going to be um, going to be interesting. Anyway, going back to um, quest for character, sure. 
why is character so important? Well, so I guess the first question there is, you know, what is character in the, in the first place? And then, and then yeah. we, we can get to why is it so important? So a character is a combination of behavioral tendencies. So if you say, for instance, that a friend of yours is generous, right? What you mean is that other things being equal, that person is prone to be helpful to other people, to, you know, give money or time or or, uh, or resources of some sort to other yeah. people. That's what it means to be generous, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, the opposite is to be stingy, which is advice and which is also a character trait. So, so character really is a general word to describe the, the ensemble of behavioral tendencies that we have as human beings. Right. Mm. Right. So the notion, therefore, is that then, then by definition, you want to have a good character because having a good character means you have positive behavioral tendencies that you tend to do the kinds of things that are helpful to both you and other people. And having a bad character, on the other hand, means that you do the opposite. So it kind of becomes, by definition, of course, you want a good character. Question mm. is, yeah. how do you get a good character, right? Right. Yeah. And, you know, is it is it possible, for instance, to uh, to teach virtue in the first place? Virtue is a, uh, a general word that signifies a good character in the in the Greco-Roman tradition. Mm. In fact, the, the book, The Quest for Character, starts with the, the first the very first chapter is about can can virtue be taught? And uh, Socrates had two different answers, in fact, <laughs> to that mm. question. In one of the Platonic dialogues, the Meno, Socrates concludes that virtue actually cannot be taught. And one of the reasons he arrives at that conclusion is because he says, you know, if, if, if virtue were something that can be, can be taught, then you would see a lot of teachers around it because it's an important thing to learn. So you have a lot of teachers. I don't see any teachers of virtue, and therefore it must be that it can't be taught. But right. interestingly, uh, in another uh, Platonic dialogue, the Protagoras. Socrates starts out with the same exact uh, sort of position, you know, virtue cannot be taught. And then he changes his mind by the end of the dialogue. And mm. the way he changes his mind is because, of all things, he talks to Protagoras, who is a sophist. Now, normally, the sophists are the arch enemies of Socrates. So it's kind of interesting to see a Platonic dialogue where it is a sophist to actually... Uh, changes Socrates' mind. But basically, Protagoras says, look, virtue, you know, character traits in general are like are a, are a technical skill, like, like music or languages. Um, you can learn music. Anybody can learn how to play an instrument. Now, of course, some people are going to be better uh, at playing. Some people, in fact, are going to be natural prodigies, right? Some, some mm. people... Just pick up a musical instrument and they'll just go 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 on and and they're they're great. Others, even if you teach them, they'll barely be able to put together you know a simple tune. But nevertheless, everyone can be taught the the, the skill of playing an instrument. And how do you do that? Well, there are three components to learning something like playing an instrument. One is you probably want to know a little bit of musical theory. Yeah. You know, basic stuff about you know the notes and how they relate to each other that sort of stuff so a little bit of theory you also probably want a good teacher you could learn a musical instrument on your own but the advantage of having a teacher is that the teacher can guide you can can show you shortcuts can show you where you're going wrong can can you know modify your your bad form so it's going to be much better to 
to uh, learn with a teacher. And of course, the better the teacher, the more you're going to learn, the better you're going to learn. But mostly, it's really going to be about practice. Right? So mm -hmm. most of the time, you will not be actually with a teacher, you will not be studying theory. What you do is you pick up the instrument, let's say a saxophone, and you just play and play and play and play. And you, you mm -hmm. try the scales over and over and over, right? And you try simple tunes over and over and over until you get it right by, by habit, by mindful uh, effort. And so Protagoras says, it's the same with virtue and with character traits. Some people are naturally more, let's say, generous or brave or, or something like that, and others less so. But anyone can, everyone can learn to be more brave or more generous by the same combination of things. You want a little bit of theory. The theory in this case comes out of any, any some kind of philosophy of life, essentially, like stoicism, let's yeah. say. Um, you want a teacher. You know, if you can get Socrates, great. If you can get Epictetus, great. If you get somebody else, fine. Uh, you know, it works okay. And then a lot of practice, mm -hmm. day by day. Um, and so then the question becomes, well, what does it mean to practice? I mean, it's clear to us when, you know, if I tell you, if we, if we talk about learning how to play a musical instrument, it's clear what it means to practice. You just, you just pick up the instrument and tries, try over and over. But what does it mean to practice virtue? Mm. So yeah. let me give you an example, right? Uh, so let's say that you, you, you realize a little bit of self-examination or maybe you've just been out there talking to Socrates and you realize that uh, you're not as generous as you could be. Mm. You want to you improve that aspect of your character, right? Well, there are a number of ways you could do that. One simple way, for instance, is to get into, into the habit of uh, putting some pocket, some change in your pocket in, when you leave the house and then give that change to the first homeless person you encounter. Yeah. Just, just, right. Now, initially, this will not come natural to you. In fact, you might even wonder, you know, why, why am I doing this exactly? Uh, but it, if you start doing it and you do it regularly, consistently, not yeah. necessarily every day, but, you know, uh, consistently, then eventually it becomes a, a habit. It becomes second nature. It becomes the kind of thing you don't even think about it. You just pick it up and, 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 and do it. And so that's one way that Aristotle, among others, said we can improve our character uh, by practice, by, by making a habit of certain things. Mm. And this is no it, different. From, it is possible. Uh, yeah. Oh, it is possible, absolutely. And, and it works. I mean, there is pretty good evidence from modern social science that it, that it does work. And it's really no different from the way in which we get to do other things. You know, how do, how do you learn how to um, eat better, for instance, right? Eat more healthy. Well, you initially make a mindful effort. You pay attention to what, you, what you're eating, your portion size, the kind of stuff you're eating, et cetera, et cetera. And that requires yeah. effort. Because mm -hmm. it doesn't come natural, right? You you rather go for the cheeseburger and the fries rather than you know the salad or the fruits and stuff like that. But yeah. if you force yourself initially to do it over and over and over, eventually it becomes second nature. I've talked to a number of vegetarians, for instance, who tell me that you know when they were younger they actually loved meat, and now it's it, they feel it's disgusting. Right. They, they have mm -hmm. gotten themselves. Yeah, they got themselves so much into the habit of not eating meat that now the whole idea is so alien to them. But ten years ago or twenty years ago, they were you know steak a day kind of kind of person. 
Right. <laughs> and I guess um, it's it's with philosophy, um, and, and perhaps you see this often where people people study philosophy and read it and, and try and learn it, um, but then don't practice it. Yes, that's that's part of the problem, right? So there was a, I I would say, embarrassing uh, set of series of papers that came out a few years ago about contemporary moral philosophers, and uh, so these people basically uh, investigated just how moral moral philosophers are, uh, how mm-hmm. how ethically do they behave, right? And by moral philosophers, I mean professors of of ethics at university. And it turns out that they were no more ethical by a number of measures, uh, empirical measures, than any any other any other faculty in any other department in a university. Yeah, yeah. Which is puzzling, right? It's like, wait a minute, you're you're teaching. That's your field. You're teaching ethics mm. to other people, but that you not you don't act more ethically than other people. How does that work? And I think the reason that that happens is because modern philosophy has gotten detached from practical philosophy. You know, these days to become a philosopher, you have to spend several years working on a PhD dissertation about a very abstruse, very technical, very specialized, uh, you know, topic and then uh, you, you you start thinking that doing philosophy means to spend most of your time thinking very very hard about very very tiny little aspects of 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 a particular problem as opposed to being a philosopher meaning you actually live a philosophical life you live mm. like you live you try to actually embody your principles. It's weird and it's something that I think my colleagues in in philosophy really need to need to consider it'll be like going to a preacher who gives you advice on on you know not smoking let's say or not drinking or not cheating on your wife and then you discover that he cheats smokes and and drinks it's like wait a minute Mm. (laughs) how does that work uh if you preach certain things you are supposed i think it's reasonable to expect that people that preach certain things actually practice those things or at least try their best yeah. We're all human beings. We're all fallible. You know, we, we all slip up once in a while. So I don't, I'm not suggesting that ethical philosophers ought to be paragons of virtue, but yeah, better than average, yes. <laughs> yeah, you would think so. I mean, that, and that's a problem with, with philosophy, I suppose. And, and you may um, be able to elaborate on this a bit more, but people who go into philosophy with an idea of trying to improve themselves and those people that they're around, if they've got something inherent in them that they, you know, struggle with, even with the philosophy and the practice, they may struggle with changing that um, and therefore then feel maybe guilty um, or some sense of remorse that they aren't living up to what they, I guess, expect based on their philosophy, uh, philosophical studies and therefore maybe give up as well. Do you find that as common? I think that's, uh, I think that may be true in some cases, but, you know, most people that get into philosophy these days just do it uh, because they love arguing on very tiny little things and and, and thinking about tiny little things. They they, they love what um, sometimes is referred to as as hair splitting, you know, logic chopping and stuff like that. And this has been a problem actually for a long time. I mean, uh, even Epictetus says to one of his students in the discourses, like you know. 
if you come here just to learn about the, the intricacies of, of logical reasoning according to Chrysippus, you're not doing philosophy. You're just doing the equivalent, the philosophical equivalent of literary criticism. Mm. You know, you, you, you just, you're not practicing the philosophy. You're just interested in the, in the abstract, you know, theoretical parts of it. So what? What, what, that, what difference is that going to make to your life? I mean, show me, uh, you know, how that makes a difference. Uh, yeah. Seneca also writes in one of his letters, I think it's in one of the letters that he writes to his friend Lucilius, he says, don't, don't explain to me uh, the different kinds of friendship. Tell me how to be a good friend, right? Mm -hmm. Don't explain to me the meaning of the word love. Teach me how to love other people, that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know, so, so this is being a long That's true. problem that yeah. has been a long making, in the making, like 2,000 years or, or so. Something certainly to think on. Um, mate, congratulations on the book and, and thanks for coming on and sharing uh, with us today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We sort of went off in tangents there, but I know there's a lot more in the book about, you know, the, the quest for character. Um, so definitely, guys uh, out there, uh, grab a copy of that. It's um, There's a few places where you can get that from. I assume it's on Amazon there, Massimo. And, um, yes. Yeah. And yes, how else can people much, reach um, you? Yeah, pretty much anywhere you, you find books, you'll find it. It comes out uh, on September 27th, so five days from now. Uh, yeah. As far as reaching me, uh, then there's one place to go. It's massimopilucci.org, and you'll find there links to all my writings, podcasting, interviews, books, whatever. Fantastic. Yeah, and we'll stick the link from the other show in there as well. Massimo, thanks, um, thanks so much for coming on, guys. Check it out at thehiddenwide.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon